Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The AHRQ report really shone a light on the importance of robust research and outcomes data. The NIH Sleep Research Plan outlines five strategic goals to demonstrate how sleep and circadian science can advance medicine and promote public health. To talk with us today about the future of sleep and circadian research and the Sleep Research Plan is Dr. Marishka Brown. Dr. Brown is director of the National Center on Sleep Disorder Research, located within the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the NIH. The NCSDR supports research in sleep and circadian biology and sleep disorders. Her past research includes sleep and aging and neurodegeneration. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Brown. I've really been looking forward to this. Thank you so much for the invitation, Seema. I really look forward to the conversation. So let's jump in to um, something I didn't realize. So the NIH has funded sleep and circadian research for over three decades. So for those of us who are unfamiliar with the structure of the NIH, can you please help me understand what the NIH is and which components are involved in sleep and circadian research? Absolutely. So the NIH is the largest funder of biomedical research in the world. And so the NIH is comprised of 27 institutes, centers, and offices, uh, the oh, National wow. Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute being one, and that's where the NCSDR is located. So a, a little bit of background for the NCSDR to hopefully orient the audience is that the center is congressionally mandated and our mission includes the support of research as well as research training, uh, growing the pipeline, mm. uh, coordination of the activities of the center with similar activities across the NIH, but also across the federal government. And kind of the third uh, banner component for our mission is education of the public and the research communities. And so the NCSDR exist because of the very strong advocacy of the and, and essentially the relentless efforts of the sleep community. Oh, wow. Com yes, <laughs> we exist because our community <laughs> leaned on Congress to make sleep and sleep disorders a national discussion. And so with that, our sleep and circadian research is funded uh, by about 21 of the institutes and centers and offices across NIH. Uh, and since the inception of the NCSDR, NIH has supported over $3 billion uh, for sleep wow. and circadian research. That's a lot of money. Yes, yes. And we're about uh, up to, at this point, about $500 million a year. It's been steadily increasing because the sleep and circadian research portfolios have been evolving. The research is evolving. And so even though we're supporting, we're, we continue to support uh, the area in, you know, the neurosciences uh, and things of that nature, we're also growing to support uh, sleep in the immune system, sleep in the health of women, sleep and substance use disorder. And so it really is a growing opportunity uh, for sleep in the space of sleep medicine, but also in the space of public health. So did I hear you correctly when you said 21 out of 27 are involved in sleep, 
sleep research? Yes. So of the 27 institutes and centers, 24 of them actually fund research. And so we have a center such as the Fogarty International Center, the Center for Scientific Review, and the Center for Information Technology, where they don't fund research. Mm. Uh, But of the 21, of, of the 24, uh, that do fund research, 21 of them do support sleep and circadian research. Wow. So I was on your website, which actually I think outlines this really, really well. Um, and I saw that your institute had outlined five strategic goals as well as tactics as they relate to sleep research. And so <laughs> when I was reading this, you know, these are really broad and ambitious. And I, I see that they're not necessarily about sleep sort of in a silo, right? But they they look at how sleep and circadian disturbances can impact a host of medical disorders. And so this is something that we have talked about a lot, about how do we communicate the importance of sleep to our non-sleep colleagues. Um, so I'm very impressed by that. And I'm wondering if you think non-sleep people have been receptive to this conversation. So uh, I'll back up a little bit. So even though the sleep research plan uh, exists on the pages of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, you know, again, we talked about uh, the support of sleep and circadian research across NIH. And so this plan is not the NHLBI and CSDR plan, right? It's the mm. NIH-wide mm. sleep research plan. And, and it was developed with the input from our Sleep Disorders Research Advisory Board, which is our FACA committee, from the NIH-wide Sleep Research Coordinating Committee, which uh, is comprised of program officials across NIH that hold sleep and circadian biology in their portfolios, as well as NIH leadership, uh, the medical and research communities, and the public stakeholders. And so this plan was not a plan that NCSDR staff kind of sat down and wrote and came up with the priorities ourselves. It really was an effort from these many different stakeholders. And so, yes, the the goals are broad and Mm. and, 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 and a little bit encompassing of things. And they are, you know, touching on all of these different spaces outside of sleep and circadian. And so I I think I like to think that sleep is essentially uh, as the great integrator, for mm-hmm. lack of a better yes. term, yes, uh, because it touches on so many different things. And when you talk about the opportunity uh, for sleep is not just in the sleep community, mm. it's in the cardiovascular community, it's in the immune community, it's in um, not only basic research and medicine, but in the public health community. It's mm. important for safety and transportation and housing. So sleep touches on, again, all of these different things. And we'll, I can say that um, there are some audiences that have been more receptive than others, <laughs> but as the research advances and as the awareness of sleep uh, has grown, so has that interest. And so when you think about the public, right, the public has bought into sleep. Right. Hook, line, and sinker, right? right? The public, the public spends uh, billions of dollars of their own money t- every year to go to sleep and to have quality wakefulness. But medicine uh, has been a little bit more of a challenge. 
But but you hit on an important point. I mean, we joke about it, right? That some people are more receptive than others. You know, my my husband is a nurse in the cardiac cath lab. And so I'm forever <laughs> talking about how important <laughs> it is for sleep and cardiovascular disease and so on and so forth. And depending on the cardiologist, it's either embraced or dismissed entirely. Yes, it you're you have hit on the point, Seema, exactly. And so how do we change this? How do we move this conversation? Mm -hmm. Because the research is there. The science is there. Decades of epidemiological research. So much of a deep literature of the mechanistic research of the importance of sleep. But that translation mm -hmm. into broader medicine so is this something for uh, the sleep medicine community to start thinking about? What is the position of sleep medicine on the importance of sleep, not only for sleep medicine, but for overall global health? So is that so I'm, I'm looking at your first goal, the sleep and circadian mechanisms underlying health and disease. So tell me more about this. Is this kind of what you're you're getting at? So not really. So part of that with the first goal um, essentially is a mechanistic goal. That is, again, uh, additional research into understanding what these the underlying mechanisms and their connection to health and disease. But the conversation uh, that we're having about the translation of that isn't necessarily about more research, but how can the existing research mm. be then moved to inform the minds of uh, the medical community within the sleep medicine community, as well as outside the sleep medicine community. As you mentioned, your husband, you know, in talking to the cardiologist, it depends on what cardiologist you get, right? right so right. how do we move that conversation from it depends on who you get to everyone is on the same page? But I love you've hit on something really important. You know, whenever we bring up something Everyone's always like, yeah, we need more research. We need more research. But you're bringing up, well, we need to look at our existing research and and explain it and translate it in a way that is meaningful. Yes, Seema, because we will always need more research. Mm -hmm. There will always be more questions that, that should be answered. There will always be new discoveries to be made. But how do you take those fantastic foundational discoveries? And it is so exciting. The research in sleep and circadian biology is really, really exciting. But how do we move? How do we overcome that barrier of taking those really, really exciting foundational findings? to actually the health of people in the clinic. So um, so let's go to goal number two then, risk reduction and treatment of sleep and circadian disorders. Tell so, me about that one. So actually, before we go to goal number three, yeah. and one of the things that, you know, I certainly want to impress on on everyone. So goal number five, we have is foster the development of a strong and diverse workforce for sleep and circadian research. Mm -hmm. And even though we talk about it essentially, or, or it's in quote unquote fifth place, I want to talk about it because it's actually probably one of the most important goals. Because if you don't have that research workforce, if you don't have the people to do the work, then none of the other goals yes. matter. Well, and I'm glad you said that. So they're not meant to be 
this is not a hierarchy of goals. It is not a hierarchy of goals. And so okay. w- when I w- was presenting this in, in the public conversations, I actually had them side by side. Mm. And, and even that, though <laughs> they're yeah. listed as one, two, three, four, five, it really is the way to probably visualize it is like a pyramid. And, and at the, the bottom, the base is mm, the workforce. And they are side by side on the website. You're right. Okay, so let's talk about that one. Foster the development of a strong and diverse workforce for sleep and circadian research. Absolutely. And that could be boiled down to you need the people, you need the expertise. But when we talk about the development of a strong and diverse workforce for sleep and circadian research, we don't necessarily mean just the people who are trained in sleep and circadian uh, medicine or biology, because the opportunity, as we spoke about earlier, is much bigger than that. And mm-hmm. so, again, when we're talking about moving the conversation and moving these foundational findings, pulling in other people or is is part of that but also the findings getting them out there and so having the conversation to with you know cardiologists and even mm. though they're not necessarily a sleeper circadian research that they're actually considering sleep in their studies and maybe pulling in a sleep researcher to advance that study or just getting educated and understanding that their studies or the things that they do are impacted by sleep. Because again, we talked about sleep as an integrator of all of these different things. Mm. And so when we talk about bioinformatics, when we talk about uh, physician scientists are one, but also clinician science, nursing research, uh, when we talk about implementation research, all of these people, the research that we're developing for sleep and circadian biology, all of these components are in need of that research whether they know it or not. (laughs) Well, and I think that's it. I think this is something that is a little bit, you know, to me, so I'm a clinician. I'm not a researcher at all. And so um, for me to learn more about this, it's really astonishing how, how deep it is, right? Like it's that you've been doing it for so long and there's this incredible amount of money behind it. And that you've hit on so many different areas. You know, you've, you've mentioned um, you've mentioned sleep in women and cardiovascular disease and, and, you know, dependence and all of these other things. And so I appreciate what you're saying about growing this workforce and that it's not limited to sleep clinicians and sleep researchers, but rather we are sort of including maybe cardiologists and other people to consider sleep in, in whatever they're doing. Right. And that's how you grow the field. And when you Mm -hmm. talk about uh, not only just the field, but how you move the science forward, how you advance the science into both medicine as well as public health. Mm. So then does this take us back then to goal number three, clinical implementation of sleep and circadian research? It does take us back. (laughs) <laughs> to goal number three. <laughs> so so you, you have that, right? So we have all of this information, again, and, and, and I, I think we can even uh, hit on this a, a little bit more when we're talking about data science, big data. Mm. Like you, you hear about this, you know, the electronic health records and, and telemedicine and how we're delivering the, the, the these new 
delivery systems. And maybe some are not necessarily new, but certainly since the pandemic, uh, they are more ubiquitous in our environment. And all of these kind of, um, all of these things really hold a, a great promise in addressing the need for quality healthcare for all, for right. everyone, right? It's just not the people who have easy access or live in communities where they only have to walk a couple of blocks to see their physician or drive 10 minutes. I will use an example as uh, a former member on our Sleep Disorders Research Advisory Board uh, who was representing uh, the Restless Leg Foundation, where in order to see her specialist, mm. she was driving two and a half to three hours oh my for gosh. those appointments. Wow. And so how could we use these existing technologies to address those barriers or to accelerate uh, the clinical implementation of the research into those spaces. Mm. So let's take a quick break before we talk about the final sleep research goal. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. To meet the demands of sleep practices like yours, WatchPad, an industry-leading HSAT, brings you SleepPath, a revolutionary app that streamlines time-consuming tasks like screening, questionnaires, and the paperwork associated with arriving at a sleep apnea diagnosis. WatchPad with SleepPath does this and so much more, providing a holistic view of the patient by looking further than AHI, accessible anytime, anywhere. To see WatchPad with SleepPath, visit the Zolitomar booth number 151 at Sleep 2022. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Today's guest is Dr. Marishka Brown, Director of the National Center on Sleep Disorder Research, and we're talking about the NIH's sleep research goals for the coming years. So we've hit on goal five, one, two, and three, and you kind of, I think, were leading into goal number four about sleep and circadian disruptions and health disparities. You were telling us a story about a patient that had to travel two and a half hours for medical care. Absolutely. And so when we talk about disparities, I think we want to break that down just mm. a little bit. And so um, health disparities or sleep health disparities actually has a specific definition that was uh, developed of, in combination with several of the extramural research uh, communities. And so I spoke a little bit earlier mm. about the conference in 2018 about sleep and health disparities. And so we brought in investigators uh, from around the U.S., some that worked in sleep, health, some that worked in uh, circadian biology, and investigators who also worked in health disparities. We also mm -hmm. had some investigators who worked in sleep health disparities. But what we realized in that conference is that even though uh, there was some synergy in the disciplines, some of these investigators were speaking a different language. Oh, sure. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet that's true. And, and so how can you explore something or research something if you can't really define it? And so after that workshop, one of the first things that we did was define what a sleep health disparity was. And so essentially the sleep health disparity 
our sleep health disparities, our differences in one or more dimensions of sleep health. And that includes duration, efficiency, timing, regularity, alertness, and quality on a consistent basis that actually adversely impact designated disadvantaged populations. And so the designated health disparity populations actually is a specific, um, are specific groups. And that includes uh, American Indian, Alaska Natives, uh, Asian Americans, even though we understand that there are challenges with that because that's a very large umbrella when you talk about Asian Americans, but right now it's kind of the space that we're working in. Um, it also includes Black, African-American, uh, Hispanic Latinos, uh, Native Hawaiians, and other specific Islanders. But it not only includes uh, racial and ethnic minoritized populations, it also includes sex and gender minorities mm. uh, and the socioeconomically disadvantaged, uh, such as those living in rural population and those who are living in rural population areas. And so I wanted to clarify that because even though we know that um, there are groups that experience disadvantage or, or health disparities that we are talking about uh, very specific um, populations. And you're right, when we talk about uh, the person who had to drive uh, two and a half to three hours to get access to quality care, that person was living in the underserved rural mm. area. Mm. Well, and it's so funny because I never thought about that. You know, it, it, to me, it's just I, I feel like it's something that we sort of understand inherently what um, what disparity means and sleep health disparity. But the way that you've articulated it, um, I, I recognize that now it is important to speak the same language. That's a great definition. Well, it took a while to get to it. <laughs> and, and, and we realized that, you know, not everything is perfect. But what I will say is that once we had the definition, we started to see more and more and more uh, applications come in, focusing on uh, the stated definition of sleep health disparities. Huh. So we have this mechanism uh, for researchers to apply to grants, and it's called Mechanism and Consequences of of sleep and health disparities in the US. And so we developed that funding opportunity in 2017 uh, because we wanted to stimulate this area. We had very, very little uh, going on outside of a few uh, sleep researchers who were looking into the space. But once we develop that funding opportunity announcement, now we are not only seeing a number of applications coming through that funding opportunity announcement, then we have applications coming in every cycle, oh, essentially, wow. looking at sleep health disparities. And I will say that personally, you know, this is something that we're very excited about because we were able to grow essentially a new scientific area. Oh, I suppose I never thought of it that way. So let's talk about some of these tactics that you have outlined online. And, and personally, I love that you have included wearables and AI to improve disease surveillance. So talk to me a little bit about these tactics and how they could potentially change the way our field of sleep medicine looks over the next decade. Seema, that is a great question. And I will say, I, I want to reiterate that the plan and the development of the plan uh, was from many different stakeholders. It was from our sleep and circadian 
research communities, the professional medical societies, our Sleep Disorders Research Advisory Board, the NIH leadership, and the interest of the public. And so all of these stakeholders thought that it really was important to address uh, and have these tactics put in the plan because they realized that there were several methodological and technical barriers that could not only delay innovation, but essentially uh, medicine care in medicine as well as public health. And so when we talk about uh, how these tactics could change the field and what they and what the field would look like in the next decade, I, I want to focus essentially on one thing and that's AI and machine learning mm. and utilizing these techniques uh, to enable whether it's predictive modeling and uh, the interoperability of these multidimensional sleep and circadian uh, rhythm data that's being collected uh, in all of these spaces when we talk about wearables because the collection of data is one thing, right? And we can collect data until the end of time, but how do you analyze? How do you process? How do you meaningfully interpret that data. And that's when you go into like this AI and machine learning and developing new algorithms and new ways to look at the data. And so it really can change uh, or, or really uh, will lead to changes in the field over the next decade. And I want to give an explicit example in the space of AHI or the Ooh, apnea yes. hypopnea index. Yes. Uh, so we have been seeing more and more, it has really been uh, a noticeable increase and the number of applications that are looking to address uh, the AHI uh, with machine learning. And so uh, the sleep community, the sleep medicine community in particular, is very uh, well versed in, in sleep studies and the amount of data that mm. is collected during a sleep study. Uh, but for um, even though there's a massive amount of data collected, essentially it's all boiled down mm -hmm. to this one measure, which is an AHI to diagnose uh, obstructive sleep apnea. But what happens with the rest of that data? What are we overlooking by not processing that data? Well, that's and exactly it. That's exactly it. It's such an important topic, right? Because you're right, we're distilling it down to this sort of magical AHI. Um, and my cardiology colleagues kind of tease me about it because it's it's like an echo, right? That if all you get out of an echo is the EF, you're missing this huge <laughs> chunk of it, right? And so look at all the data we collect, all this EEG data. And, you know, can we look at EEG fingerprinting? And can we look at identifying people at risk of Alzheimer's and, you know, so on and so forth? Like there's, it just seems to me, and I'm a, I'm a pulmonologist, I'm not a neurologist. And so maybe I'm, you know, making it out to be more than it is. But I feel like there's so much data in the EEG that we're just kind of, you know, disregarding because we're focused on the HI. You are not making it up. And, <laughs> and, and that is what has happened. That is what has happened up till now. And so 
based on the conversations and seeing the uptick in applications and really the, the, the seminars and panels, it appears that the researchers in, in, in sleep medicine are now at a place where there is serious consideration of moving beyond the AHI mm -hmm. to more robust and precise diagnostics for not only sleep disordered breathing, but other sleep disorders. Well, and that's it, right? Because we've talked about the AHI for as long as I think I've been in sleep medicine. So let's say 10, 15 years. Do you think we're going to still be having this conversation in like five or 10 years? And, and you know, what do you think is going to change? Will we have a different measure of AHI? Will we have sort of like a smart AHI that incorporates maybe, you know, the hypoxic burden and, and arousals and that sort of thing? Could be. I'm not going to say yes or no, <laughs> but there's a strong indication. Uh, it, it's several ways, right? So there is uh, one side of the conversation that says get rid of the AHI. And right. there is one side that says, no, there is some utility and usefulness in the AHI, but maybe we can add other measures or refine it. There's mm -hmm. a, There was a paper that was published, uh, what was it, it 2021? or 2021 about redefining the AHI. Mm -hmm. And so whether we will still have it in 10 years from now, I don't know. But what I'm pretty sure of, uh, or what I expect, let me not say pretty sure, but <laughs> but but what it what it appears is happening is that 10 years from now, five years from now, it won't look like what it looks like today. Well, and you know what is so funny is is for me, this really came to a head with this AHRQ report, you know, and so it really made me appreciate how important that research is. As I say, I'm a clinician, I'm not a researcher, but I'm vested, right? Because I need to understand more about the AHI and PAP outcomes and so on and so forth. And I'm, and I'm wondering if you have advice for me in terms of how can clinicians better interface with our research colleagues? That's a great question. And, you know, part of that is I kind of want to throw it back to you and maybe even toss it back to some of the sleep research uh, communities and think of because you as a clinician, you're at the forefront of sleep medicine in ways because you, you're having that direct interaction with the patient. And so we think about interfacing and, 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 and working in that space, again, in my mind, it's it's the conversations to start opening up between mm -hmm. the clinicians and the researchers. And in some ways, you know, that's already happening, right? So uh, some of you belong to the same medical societies, right? <laughs> uh, there's an opportunity uh, to then open up those conversations, maybe uh, going beyond uh, what you may do at a conference and maybe attend talks and, and poster sessions. And, you know, even though the research uh, that's being developed, some of the research may not necessarily be ready for prime time, wouldn't it be great to talk to one of your uh, colleagues in that space? Because there are, you know, things that you could do as a clinician that impacts the research or that well, and, could impact the research. Well, and you're right. I mean, a few years ago, I had this opportunity to be part of this, you know, SRS ASM workshop. 
And I think that was the first time I really saw the two groups. And it's just me as a clinician sort of making this observational thing. I'm not in academics and, you know, I'm in private practice. And it was just such a cool experience to have all of these really smart people in the same room talking about the same thing, but from really very different vantage points. And I thought it was very fruitful. Um, And so it made me think about, well, how can we make that sort of interaction more accessible to people because there has to be a certain amount of intention, right? Like you have to intentionally seek that out. And so is there a way to reduce that barrier to entry? Right. And and these are not overnight conversations that we're having, right? So I'll give you an example. When it took uh quite a number of years for the sleep and circadian communities to start talking to each other. <laughs> And really starting to see, I think there there was a sense of huh. of how the science aligned, but they were they were separate I for didn't a know long that. time. And I, huh. I will say that uh, the first uh, acting director of NCSDR, who is now the director of the Division of Lung Diseases, uh, when I asked him about what his uh, greatest accomplishment was, and as being the NCSDR director, and it was just that, getting the sleep and circadian communities to actually uh, interact and integrate at a higher level. I didn't know that. And so I put that out there because, you know, when we talk about uh, moving the research into these different places or moving it into clinical practice, we understand that these things take time, but we also uh, need to be in it for the long game or the long term in order to really impact medicine and really have an impact on public health. Wow. So what would you like our colleagues to know? That you do have a space in this conversation when it comes to research, that you do have a voice. Being at the forefront of, of sleep medicine actually um engaging with the patients themselves that you have something to offer. Hmm. So get connected and offer it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Just very, very straightforward advice. I love that. Thank you for your leadership at the NCSDR and your research into how sleep impacts health and safety. I really appreciate everything you've done for the field and bringing sleep to the forefront with federal agencies and other stakeholders. And I really appreciate the invitation to have this conversation, Seema. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.